0: Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. Hi, everybody. Thank you all so much for coming. I'm Terry Sultan. I'm the director here at the Parish Art Museum. And I'm very pleased to see all of you here on our one sunny afternoon after 39 straight days of rain. So this is obviously a real testament to your dedication to the museum and to to Renata and to um, talking about art. So I'm grateful to you all for coming. Renata, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for
1: having me. Well, I I have to say thank you first, Terry, for actually, well, way, way back, taking interest in my work, but for writing my essay. And, of course, then, to my surprise, to invite also my work into the museum. And the greatest joy I had was our conversations in my studio before, actually before I knew that uh, just in preparation for the for the essay you wrote but also in when when I presented you the site-specific idea of this installation and I sort of left it open for us to discuss and you were we, we did kind of play with it and you you were so thrilled that I was just very touched by that and this is my favorite room also that's actually
0: (laughs) well let's go back a little bit I have been following your work for a long time and you've worked in several series that seemed to um, have one unifying theme which is you know kind of this global discussion about humanity's relationship to the natural world how did you get to this place? Uh, you were born in Germany, you're now living in New York. You have a home out here in the Hamptons, mm-hmm. but you studied in England, and you have lots of other things that you do besides deploy a camera. I know that you've designed furniture and uh, you've done performance art. so just for the edification of uh, of all of our friends and uh and supporters here, just just give a little bio.
1: Oh uh, yeah, because I'm quite old already. That's a very long bio. <laughs> you probably don't have enough time. But to make, well, it, make short, it short, <laughs> to make it short, um, I, w- I was born in near Hamburg on the River Elbe. I mean, in the hospital. But you know, there. And my parents had both 45 when the war was over and um, f- had to find their way. To Hamburg because they both happened to have relatives there, so to have a footing, and that's where they met. But they had to make their way through, you know, green borders and from, you know, coming from camps, labor camps, et cetera. And so we grew up, my sister and I grew up, my parents always took us, instead of going to some fun vacations, we were always climbing mountains and you know, on weekends we would go through forests and then my father would teach us where is north, you know, where the moss and the trees and all that. So we always they were very worried that we'd get lost in the emotional, political, and the actual landscape. That was I think their aim, the entire complete aim. That was the only worry about us. And so that's why I grew up always trying to find my bearings. And, well, as they also say, that people my age, their education at college, or we call it gymnasium um, in Germany, was to create a critical newspaper reader. <laughs> and, again, I guess you have to find always your way with a lot of information at hand. So I guess that's why I always made work thinking, where am I? Or where are people in relationship to their surrounding, either the urban surrounding or in nature?
0: When did you know that you wanted to be an artist?
1: Uh, well, from the first picture you saw that was up when you walked in, um, I had a little aqua click, which is like a brownie um, camera with probably eight exposures. And I took photos during vacations. My sister would pose like a Italian film star. My mother had this trained gaze into the distance look that you know because we had to stand forever because my father composed this picture I didn't want to waste a frame and I always used to stand with the back I, I have loads of slides I could make a whole slideshow from with, with they they are posing looking good and the nature perfect composition I would stand with the back to my father looking down with the spindly legs and all and you know you would interpret any psychiatrist in the room maybe you would immediately say I'm having like issues with my parents and their relationship and you know it's very sad but I was just looking down taking my own photo basically (laughs) so I was fine (laughs) so Uh, But I never thought when I went into art school, I I used to also compose music. And I guess because I grew up with this sort of whole Bauhaus idea that all arts are equal on equal footing. I mean, there's a sort of democracy there. I didn't really think that there'd be any difference between, you know, dance, performance, music, composition, etc. I never thought of photography being art really until I went into art school and I started using the camera as part of installations and but you st- you studied painting fairly seriously also did you not? Yeah I went into art school as a painter and I used to paint on photos and you know I, I and at art school actually Robin Klasnick which is Matt's gallery in London uh, he was my mentor and um I said to him I wanted to go into the sculpture department because they they had crits self-organized crits and they were really interesting people well it's the painters used to inhale and then while well, they go in and then exhale when they came out of their studio and um so I said, oh, I'm going to be... And he said, well, you're not a painter. and I, uh, You're not a sculptor. You're a painter. And I went... I slashed my canvas in front of him, and I said, well, that's a sculpture now. <laughs> and so I moved into the sculpture department um, because I, I thought I'm at art school to learn the language of art. I didn't think it was, like, a technical perfection school for one thing. I wanted to learn... The language art because you know most people in this room probably would look at art and they don't think oh I don't want that in my sitting room you evaluate it more as also what hangs in a museum is is this is this an interesting artwork but it's not you don't have to like it actually it's to be a good artwork and uh, so I chose all the lectures at art school of work that like Rose Finn, Kelsey, and all these people who I I didn't really understand their work or I didn't like it. And I ended up in my final doing work like that. And when did you come to New York and why? Oh, um, I always thought that... Actually, when I was really small, I was really pretty and blonde and small. Our neighbor who married an American... I mean, I'm born in 1960, so you know the time, like history and all that. She said to my father, "Renata is really pretty. She's pretty enough she could even marry an American. <laughs> now, I mean, I made it, you know? I, I, I so I, I guess I uh, qualified for a living here. <laughs> Have
0: you ever thought of having an extra career as a stand-up comedian?
1: <laughs> no, actually, I was really worried about this talk. But Terry and I, we always—I don't know. <laughs> even when we text each other, it's funny, right? It seems like it. So I guess you—you you make me feel comfortable. <laughs> but maybe we should go back to the project. Or? Well,
0: no. <laughs> <laughs> let's just say that uh, that our train of thoughts makes many stops. Uh, there's three major series that are featured in this project. Yeah. The ocean, the sand, and the mountains. Mm-hmm. And even though they were discreetly made one after the other, mm-hmm. uh, we have put them together in this project. But before we started talking about how they work together, which is kind of the, the end result of mm-hmm. our conversations, you started, I think, with the, uh, the Oceanscapes. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, because when we came, um, when we moved here, we we were living in uh, Mark Rothko's studio, the two 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 Bowery, which was you know, Michael Goldberg. You have some of his work in your collection. He was sort of like big brother. He could have probably been my grandfather. I don't know. He's much older. He doesn't live anymore, but he was very very close to us, and we were staying there while they were in Italy, and then when she still had to work, that's my husband, um, had to work in, in London to finish some work. I stayed all by myself out on Long Island on Dune Road, on the dune in a house in winter. And in order to find my bearings, those days there were no neighbors. I mean, people just weren't out there. I kept taking pictures of the ocean from there. And when I got the contact sheet back, I saw it was like the same view, you know, same camera, same photographer. It was like going through the history of art. Some looked like Turner and others looked, um, you know, like Rothko or, you know, just totally Caspar David Friedrich on one contact sheet. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I didn't think of it as an art project, but I think it helped me to, to fi- find my bearings because if you come as an artist to New York, you you don't ever think you're getting a museum show or there's so many good artists here, what, why would I, you know? So I just wanted to um, be happy and enjoy myself. And when uh, Laurie Adamson came to my studio, you know, <laughs> of course, she said, oh, are those your works? I can sell those. And so I got my first show in Washington, D.C. in their gallery and uh, our forum Critics' Choice pick sort of article and all that stuff. So I was very happy about that. But I carried on taking those photos because we eventually bought a, ho- we bought a house on the same with the same view, and we're still there, and we we live there all year round. Our neighbours here are well. <laughs> Charlie, and so we. I, I've been just always carrying on taking the the same photos from the same view. And people always say, "Oh, that's like Hiroshi Sugimoto." I'm like, "No, it's not, because he did the opposite. He went all around the world, and he combined the the um, horizon lines of different places." and i 'm photographing the same place it's more maybe more like his movie theater pictures, you know, anyway, so when I started taking the photos of the of the sand dunes, I just did that because the deserts carry the memory of the oceans, and um they are of course very far from each other, the white sands and great sand dunes and um I just did that as a separate project, like you said, and then they lay on my work tables. Normally, it's really messy, and the photos you saw in the article lately, it was very tidy, but that's not how it looks normally. They found each other, and they were lying next to each other, and uh, I just pinned them up on the wall, and I thought, yeah, they do belong together. And so they're two different re- realities. I mean, they're not the same place, but you experience them as as one space. And, and what
0: what took you to those sand dunes? What caused you to see them in the first place?
1: I think it was because I knew that the sand dunes carry the ocean's memories, and also they are in constant. We call it in German "Wunderdüne." They're in constant. That's not a very good translation. There is there? sounds like wonder dune. Yeah, but th- it's not a poetic word in English for that. So, you know, it's in constant motion, wandering dunes, basically, it's called. Uh, and the ocean is also in constant flux. So we can't really, w- we can visit those places, you know, with a boat or, you know, whatever way, go to those dunes. But we can't build a house there and stay. We can't own the place and that kind of comes back to a lot of projects that you can see on my website like who's place it anywhere or whatever about the sense of belonging also I think it's very important to understand where you belong and why do you why are you do you have a right to live somewhere because you're born there or because you love the place, or you've got a passport, or you invaded it, or, you know, there's sort of lots of reasons up for discussion on that subject matter. Do you feel that the mountains are
0: also changeable in the same way, or or the mountains stand in a way as a kind of a a difference between the movability and the wandering of the water in the sand,
1: oh, you know how it got to the mountains that wasn 't really a plan, um, and we had booked tickets to to Denver, Colorado, to take more pictures of the great sand dunes and you know the great sand dunes are they, they're sort of they 're the biggest sand dunes in the Americas, I think like they 're stuck to the rockies they 're literally stuck in front of the Rockies, and then they 're sort of Snow and blue sky and so, sort of pretty scenery. And I've always cut out the Rockies. I've pho- I photographed the the sand dunes. You also see it in the show. And um, without the mountains, you know, I cut that out. And so that time, I decided to keep the ticket because I just heard that the snow was about to come and cover the Rockies, and I thought I'll take now pictures of the mountains instead of, and cut out the sand dunes, which are really part of it. And so, yeah, Hugh arrived, as, I don't know, he arrived from Chile, from work, and he had two hours, I think, and then we flew there. We arrived 10 o'clock at night, maybe, in Denver. Actually, a bit earlier, we we got some food before, and then we drove out to some really off-the-grid place we arrived at four in the morning or something. Um, so that's how I that's ha- uh, how I started the mountains. And afterwards, I thought, "Wow, I think I'm going to just do a whole series of mountain peaks, but isolated from from the panoramic landscape that you normally expect to see them in." And so there is a sort of sense like that comes t- that. You don't understand the scale uh when you look at these pictures you and you stand in front of them in in the exhibition, for example, you don't know where where am I in relationship to to these um places and it's a sort of a abstraction it creates an abstraction and so because of this sort of absence you you create your own reality and project that. Onto their match.
0: Well, you use the word panorama, which I think is a good skew to talking specifically about the project here at the parish, in that. Essentially, what you developed uh, in that gallery is a nonlinear but panoramic view of the world. It's not a connected from the ocean to the sand to the mountains, necessarily, or geographically connected in any particular way. It's mostly connected panoramically through the compositions of the images that you made.
1: Yeah I mean uh, the oceans and sand dunes so the, like the book is out in the shop you can look through that uh, I combined they I put them how's that work with the microphone I, I put them right next to each other the ocean and the desert and they read as one landscape like I said before and so I was kind of fascinated by the idea that most people thought it was actually the same landscape and then in the mountain project, I wanted to have the same sort of effect. And, you know, a, a book is a different site than an exhibition space. So I started with a book. That was my space, basically, even though I was kind of hoping to have a big space one day to show it in. But um, I was still dreaming about that. But in the book, I wanted to have the same idea that you put two realities together to create a third and so some of the images in the book are actually two straight photos that I laid on top of each other they're not bits borrowed in a sort of digital way as we know these days they're literally two layers and the the cover of the book uh, if you want to look at that later in the bookshop is actually the way that you saw it first in my studio when um, I had two straight photos that are layered. And of course, it was important which one is in the front, which one's in the back. And now in this exhibition, I created, I, because I had the opportunity of dealing with a space, not a book, I mean, physical space, I created the same experience that I put two images next to each other from two different locations. And you sort of there's always kind of a line that goes through a bit, like a horizon line that goes through, so that you connect from one image to the next and you think you're in the same landscape. But it's actually, you know, we're starting off with dolomites here, this one and the next one is the um Swiss Alps and Alaska. And we also on purpose didn't put the labels because I always go, I don't know what you do, but I go into a gallery and I look at the label and then I step back and look at the artwork. And we wanted people to really just stand there, experience it as one landscape and enjoy that. And it makes you also feel... Safe, I think when you're in that room, it's not, even though they're very high mountains, some of them are, you know, over 22,000 feet, 24 in the Himalayas, some of them, you, you don't feel threatened by them.
0: With very few exceptions, there's no indication that there's life on earth. In in any of these pictures, there is one very mysterious image of the sand dunes with three people in it and almost impossible to understand what they're doing. And in one of the uh, mountain pictures, there's a little cross Mm. that you can see, which clearly is made by something. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, they could be anywhere. They could be Mars. They could be imaginary and even though there's a sensibility that uh, that you're thinking about humanity's interaction with the natural world, there's very, very little indication in any of your pictures that we actually are interacting with the world.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good point. <laughs> actually, yeah, those people in that sun dune, when, when we got there, we drove from Santa Fe and it was like, four hours or something actually Hugh drove I just sat next to him and we just got there and you know all that heavy equipment and you carried around and you know and I went blimey there's people you know I can't take the picture and the light was perfect as you saw it was it was like so creamy and perfect and that and, I, I mean, I don't take people out of images or put them in or something. I don't do that. I, I could, you know. But I don't. And I just looked at this and I thought, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I took the pictures and I thought, actually, it's quite interesting that they're in there. And they also, especially since all my other images don't have I mean, them, there is a... All of a sudden, a relationship to scale. But the other mystery is, like, what are they doing? I mean, the child is far away from the parents. We're not worried about that child, but still. And there's no footprints to the parents. I didn't take those away. Um, The woman is holding something that, to me, looks when I enlarge. I mean, it's enlarged. Like, she's got one of those trolley things that you take on the airplane with you. <laughs> I, I think it might actually be
0: their lunch
1: <laughs> i don 't know I have no clue, but they they obviously had a purpose, and the child must have been there before because it was very comfortable being all by itself so far away from the parents. but you mentioned scale, and I think yeah.
0: one of the things that 's so compelling about th- those people in that space is that you really at once understand the vastness of that magnificent landscape and how minuscule mm-hmm. uh, we are and you mentioned Caspar David Friedrich and you know in relation to the um the contact sheets of the of the oceanscapes you were doing but you know i think that you know there are so many historical forebears that can, that you can relate your work to including the painter caspar david friedrich but also artist-explorers like uh, Richard Long, as well as the great American uh, landscape photographers like Carlton Watkins and uh, Ansel Adams and people like that. And in fact, in the book, we do show a little compare and contrast between Ansel Adams' picture of Half Dome and yours, just you know, to show how even the same static thing exists in very different ways depending on the eyes of the person who is making the image. So do you think about these things as you're working or are these things that kind of come later after the images are
1: made? And- oh No, I, I mean, I, I thought that a lot of points that you made in the essay, which is brilliant, you should all read that, it's online or in the book. You know, you're talking about the mapping. I mean, basically our people have been, constructing landscapes and it always was in order to either own the space because once you kind of draw it you own it but also to present to whoever sent them to that world you know here this is why you paid so much money and and gave me a ship or something that the it's interesting how you actually in the essay relate to all these different ways of landscaping. Oh, brilliant. You came up with this word, um, landscaping, that landscape is actually what we call Landschaft, you know, landscape photography, whatever. It doesn't have a value, but also the person that does your landscaping in your garden, they're actually creating and imagine, I mean, in, in Nature, it's not wilderness what a landscaper is creating, you know? So I thought that was uh, uh, very interesting. I hadn't thought about that word at all, even though we keep using it, you know? I've been thinking about the difference between nature and wilderness and how we define that. But the word landscape never occurred to me that... so. That was interesting because I was busy landscaping, creating some landscapes by layering them, you know, or by by taking out such small detail, like here, for example, on the Himalayas, that you wouldn't actually know where you are but that's not what you asked. There was something else.
0: (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Sometimes uh, the question is just there to, you know, make you think about something. But, you know, we're talking about the word landscape. You know, one of the most significant books that I've read in a long time is uh, Simon Shama's book about the the transcendental nature of the Hudson River School. And it was from Shama's uh, introduction to that book where he talks about the various understandings of the not only the word, but the concept of landscape, which is both physical and psychological. And I'm sure that there's many times when, when one thinks, you know, what is the emotional landscape of the situation that I'm in in this particular time? Uh, you, know, what am I th- what, you know, what am I thinking about? What is the social and political landscape of a, a particular time and place? The landscaping as a verb and a noun are all factors in the way i come as a as a as a curator and a writer and interpreter to the work of artists who make images of mm-hmm. landscapes all of those things go into the creation of those works and also our understanding of them and i think the more information or suggestive ideas that one can have in terms of what the interpretation of an image might be the richer the experience. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons that the gallery, as you conceived it, uh, works so brilliantly is that it can be apprehended and experienced in so many different ways. You know, depending on where your focus lands at any given time and how you experience the the panorama of the of the of the images.
1: Yeah, I mean, come to that. First, the, the book you mentioned, Shama's book, is my first book I had at art school. I, was, I have a tattered version there. It's called Landscape and Memory. Yeah, and um, that's one, one of my first books I had as an artist, or before art school even, maybe. But coming back to this room now, yes, I would have chosen that room also, before the the bigger room on the other side because this room that my work's in you can sort of embrace the room the larger room I, I probably could have worked with it but I think the scale of that room works really well because you you un- you understand where you are in that space and the hanging so we created basically a landscape a uh, imaginary landscape that you kind of think you're in the way you experience it in the studio, these pieces on the floor, they they were 11 inches apart and that was the perfect way for our eyes to connect from one image to the next but in here when I arrived on the day of hanging, because we had worked everything out down to the inch, they were six inches apart. And you said, look at this. And I couldn't believe it. They worked in this space. I mean, it was an amazing difference. Because if they're too close, then your eye goes sort of like ping pong from one image to the next. You probably know that when you hang at home, you work as well. If they're too far apart, then, there's, then you lose the connection. So in some ways, it had to be just right. And, and the room always tells you. Uh, I think
0: one of the, the beauties, especially working in this building, is that when you put the works of art in a gallery and just wait the images will actually tell you what they want in order yeah. to be the most comfortable and communicative. And, uh, you know... But
1: I'm also lucky that that floor... I mean, I, I said that before once, it... it, it I would have ordered a floor like that if I could have. It's perfect because it looks like a like a the bottom of a river, you know, like a polished uh, piece of, of, of rock, and so it kind of anchors the images visually. And then the ceiling is like a cathedral, and the uh, the mountains kind of reach up. So that whole room feels like a cathedral. I think. I'm, yeah, it's very I, I'm very happy <laughs> that you just let me run with that. But that was really good.
0: No, it was it was a, a great experience to see everything like that, you know, come together. It looks very effortless, but, you know, obviously it's not. You know that it's working when it looks like it's always been there and it was supposed to be the way it is.
1: Yeah, and also I have to say people sometimes think that I crop the images so that they do line up, right? They're not. They just... Every time I take a photo, when I look through the lens, I look at it and think this is the first and last ever, as if that's the only picture I'll ever take in my whole life. Uh, I never think about images I've done before or after because I, I just look at it... For that, what it is in that moment. So later on, when you do, let's say, a show like in a museum or in a specific space, that's when the printouts, the 30 by 40 or the smaller printouts, depending on how many, when you lay them next to each other, you know, sometimes coincidentally, you find two next to each other and you go, oh. They work, you know, so there's a lot of serendipity there as well, so they're not created to fit together no, I mean it just it just it
0: happened. You were thinking about the room, you were thinking about the images, and mm. you know I think that as you were playing with them on your work table, you started to see how this came together. I think that that one of the other things that is interesting about the way that that you made these images, you know, a lot of people use digital manipulation now. A lot of artists are flying around in helicopters and airplanes in order to get certain kinds of views. You're, for the most part, is grounded on the earth when you're taking these pictures.
1: All the time. I always have my feet on the ground. I have to do that. I have taken pictures out of a helicopter on the way to the location. And they're great photos, you know. I can show them to you, and they're wonderful. But they look more like a sort of maybe National Geographic. They're just lovely photos, but they're not my artworks. And I think I always have to have my feet on the ground to take pictures. And, you know, just to talk a
0: little bit about, you know, computer generated imagery and things like that, you mentioned it before, but I think it's worth mentioning again, even the pictures that are not one single mountain, although all of the mountain pictures in this installation are straight on, Mm -hmm. straight on images, but they're not manipulated uh, digitally through oh. the computer they are actually okay. overlays I
1: have to mention though something we should have said in the beginning the profile of the projector kind of makes everything a little bit more magenta so you know you'll see them in the exhibition this these are not 100% color Correct, but yes, no. We, I don't, I don't manipulate them. Uh, mind you, though, what you said—that's the—that's one of the big sand dunes, without people. Yeah, the you were saying once in a talk. I think it wasn't about my work, even it was somebody else. That with a digital camera, you can capture so much information more than you can capture with an analog camera. Uh, and, and more than I can see. For example, a lot of these images, well, let's say especially from the Himalayas, you would never be able to see the, the detail of the rocks. It's just because I have a very special, amazing lens, very, very heavy piece of equipment. If you're on the mountain, you can't see it. And if you're away from the mountain, no binocular is going to give you that experience. So somehow I'm creating with these images an intimacy that you would maybe not otherwise be able to create with even good eyesight or binoculars. Well, I think that is one of the beauties
0: of of cameras of all kinds is that the lens of a camera shows you an image that you cannot see with Mm -hmm. your eye. And I think that's one of the reasons that people are so compelled by art photography is that it's really the eye and the hand of the artist that is producing a particular point of view of an image that is not something that you can actually see. Yeah. So I think um, we do have time for a couple of questions, if there's anybody that has one in the audience. And yeah. 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 So, When I hear your narration, your narrative tonight, it seems to me that you already know of the place, but what I wonder in my mind is, is it the location that you go after, or is, is it also a spiritual journey for you as an artist in the process? Uh, so the question is basically about um, a, a sense of spirituality in the pictures and the question is, you know, where does that come from as uh, as Renata's making the picture? Is that a fair very con- constructed uh, contracted version of the question?
1: Thank you very much. Yeah, that's a very good question. I feel that yes, I am, I think, following a spiritual journey and uh, when we were in the mountains we could actually sense the energy. By the way, the, in the Rockies, in near the Creston Needle, which is sort of where also the sand dunes are nearby, there are a lot of ashrams. And they are there because the energy is the same as in the Himalayas, apparently. And you can tell. Yeah, definitely. So I think, yes, your answer is... We do experience... I, I, and I have to say we, because my husband and I talk about it a lot. We do experience... Uh, uh, just being there is actually a spiritual experience. Oh, and I think that that's very evident in the work,
0: actually. And I, I think that uh, it is very possible to have a, a certain kind of a spiritual experience seeing those pictures in the galleries as well. Mm. Uh, it reads that way, and, uh, and I think it comes across that way.
1: Yeah. Uh, do you... How do you go about picking the location? Do you, do you start with some notion of what it is that you want to
0: photograph, or is it just that? So, for those of you in the back, the question is, how does Renata pick the locations where she's going to shoot? Does she do research first, or is it, is it more organic?
1: That's, yeah, it's a good question. So there's various layers. One is that various reasons for it. I have a whole list of locations and times of year that are connected to that. And then, of course, we have to make it a reality also because, we, you know, you have to get, you know, plane tickets and, you know, my husband needs time off from work you know and we have to just make this real that's that's also coming so that's why some mountains we couldn't photograph because we couldn't we actually booked a a very important one is the the first image that was up before we talked is I'm at the Scott Glockner and we were going to go there because I really needed to, to f- photograph that you know of course because my father photographed me there and in 72 or something like that and we booked a ticket and then she phoned the mountain guard just before, a couple of days before, and I said, oh, sorry, the, the pass is closed because we had early snow. So we couldn't go. So that's why that, because I wanted to show a picture where you can see that the glacier that we see in that old photo is actually not there anymore or, you know. So it's not that many years, really. So that's one reason was that, you know, because I was always in the mountains and I was in the Dolomites and this is Mont Blanc, which you probably recognize, um, so, some, some images are just memories from my childhood, and others... I, I went, for example, to Switzerland to take a photo of the Eiger, and, you know, that famous mountain that's really hard to climb and i in order to take that photo i had to go up opposite uh, on a mountain range and it's called first you know it's not first like first it's just first f F-I-R. i uh and th- we had to actually go there because they were going to close two days later we got the last day where the where the transport was going up because they were going to close for uh, c- for quite a long time and you can't really carry up. A- heavy equipment up there so that was the timing was defined but then i took a picture of the eiger i was very happy and then i turned to the left oh no that's not that one the one with the wafty clouds that picture the second one on that wall i don't know which direction i just turned to the left and i saw this and i'm like god this is amazing so i just turned my camera and took that photo and that photo became a more favorite photo than the eiger which is the reason why I went there. So, yeah. Things happen. Yeah. I right, we'll take one
0: more question, and then we're going to wrap it up and go into the galleries. So the question is, where haven't you been
1: yet that you would like to go? Oh, that takes a long time because it's a long list. <laughs> Pick one. Oh, China. I mean, we've been to New Zealand, which was very important to me. Um, sometimes I can't even tell you why. It's more like an intuitive thing or so. Yeah, I think I'd like to go to China, but there's like probably 30 more locations. Now you got plenty of time. Yeah, I talked about to Thomas about it, and um, he said I own those mountains. He gave them to me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, thank you for the gift of sharing your thoughts and, uh, and ideas with us. It's really great. Thank you so oh, much. Thank you. Thank you all for being here.